It's the Access Hour with me, Justin Mogg, here on Grassroots Community Radio Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville, broadcasting at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. Forward Radio was there on the morning of September 7th when Extinction Rebellion Kentucky pulled together a coalition of community groups and experts for a We All Drink Downstream Day of Community Action and Education, part of a national week of coalition actions to let the Biden administration and representatives of the media know that the government needs to halt all permitting for new petrochemical facilities now. It was a national week of action that Louisville was a part of to end the petrochemical build-out in our country and especially here in the Ohio River Valley. We were delighted to be reporting from Riverview Park on the morning of September 7th, and we are delighted to share with you now the complete experience of this event. You may have heard about it on some of the local media stations, uh, three television stations and WFPL were all there as well. You probably got a short snippet if you listen to them. You're going to get a whole hour here and we're going to dive deep into these issues of water quality and how our reliance on petrochemicals and the petrochemical industry right here in Rubbertown, West Louisville, Kentucky, has been impacting all of our health and the health of the environment as well. So from the Greenwood neighborhood at the south end of Rubbertown, we bring you We All Drink Downstream which of course started out with what you're listening to, The Mighty Shades of Ebony and Lionheart, with some music they produced for the day. And in a minute, we're going to hear from Kentucky House of Representatives for this district. Her name is Attica Scott, and she has some important things to say about this issue here. So stay tuned here at Forward Radio. Great stuff coming up here on the Access Hour. Next conversation, new generation, gentrification, more degradation. Education leads to power. Education leads to power. Education leads to power. Education leads to power. We need to use our 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 power. Black dolls are deuce to dives. They segregate our people, yeah. Poverty leads to crime. Red line. Black dolls are deuce to dives. They segregate our people, yeah. Poverty leads to crime. We all deserve clean water. Redlining is a big problem in American culture. All these white sniping future opportunities is like a poacher. In an article I read in 1933, they blocked black housing opportunities. That's white supremacy. If this is not enough proof, here's a case on police brutality. Anita George Floyd's neck, a horrible reality. Many others shot and the charges get dropped for the officers who shot them. And they had the audacity to try and teach me that they are never guilty. In Louisville, Kentucky, the west side is food needy. This is due to a lack of the food that is good and healthy. These causes are really dear to me. We need racial equity. Peaceful protesting, but we still get detained. We won't stop fighting till we get real change. Colonizers are afraid that we about to switch lanes. Sometimes I get stereotyped just because I'm white, 
but I can take the heat. You know, sometimes it hurts. We fight for social justice, still putting in that work. We all rise up together as one, and we won't stop marching until freedom comes. Hello, uh, Representative Scott. My name is Deanna Rushing. I'm with Extinction Rebellion. I'm here with Alice Melendez and Alex Akers at Riverview Park, 8202 Greenwood Road. And it's my pleasure and honor to introduce Representative Attica Scott, member of the House of Representatives since 2017, representing this district, District 41. Before that, she was a member of the Metro Council, 2011-2014, currently running to replace Congressman John Yarmouth in Kentucky's 3rd Congressional District. Thank you so much for being here, Representative Scott. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I would have been there with you in person, but we literally just got called into a special session beginning today, and so I'm not able to be with you in person, but I did want to share with you that as a member of the House's uh, Natural Resources and Energy Committee, as a longtime resident of the West End of Louisville, where there are 19 chemical companies along the Rubbertown Corridor from the southwest end of the city to the west end of the city, uh, I stand for environmental justice, for climate action, uh, to hold chemical companies accountable, including the fossil fuel industry, which has lied to us for decades about the harms that their toxic emissions were creating. And they must be held to account for the damage they've done to our environment and our health. So thank you so much again for the invitation to be with you this morning. But I also know that you all are going to be speaking this morning about the Metropolitan Super District and their attempts to revise the consent decree that currently exists in Louisville Metro government. And we know that that is a big infrastructure fight that we're going to have to take on to maintain um, accountability with MSD and that we have to make sure that we as taxpayers are not having to foot the bill for sewer repairs when we know that oil and gas infrastructure gets incentives from every level of government. And so we tend to hold a, a carry a stronger burden when it relates to our ability to drink uh, clean water, to bathe in clean water, to make sure that our health and safety is taken care of. So I'm with you in your fight stand strong. We all drink downstream and we know it. And I'm doing my part here in the state capitol to stand up for all of us across Kentucky. Well, people are starting to arrive here on the site. We've got uh, Wave 3 News and some more of our speakers and attendees are starting to turn up. You know, is there anything else you can share, you know, as far as the picture from Frankfurt of, you know, what's working and what's not working as we all fight to have investment in water rather than, you know, investment in petrochemicals and then government kind of giving free cleanup services, free fire department. You know, we just saw the fire in Russell and, you know, it lightning strike is an act of God, but having a warehouse full of paint thinner in a, in a residential neighborhood is all man. And here goes Louisville. You know, it's like our job to put the fire out and the brave firefighters have to face that they're working for the public, but they're doing the work of private industry. And so can you just talk a little bit about what's working in Frankfurt and, and Louisville and where we might put our efforts if we really want to put our shoulder to the wheel and get something to change? You know, where do you see leverage points? Definitely. So I'll tell you what's working is when the people rise up and rise up together as a collective entity to hold elected officials accountable. That's what's working. Anytime there has been an effort to push back against 
uh, harmful policies here in the, the state capital as it relates to environmental issues, climate issues. Um, it's been because the people have risen up together. So that works, that works here in Frankfurt. Unfortunately, I serve with a number of colleagues who don't come from places like where I come from, where we're trying to deal with environmental justice issues every single day, including environmental racism. And so some folks are very comfortable and think they're gonna be fine no matter what. So, so it's difficult for them to be able to relate to us. What's not working is the fact that we have far too many people in elected office who are beholden to industry, who are beholden to business, rather than beholden to the people whose health and safety is being compromised, whether it's fires in Russell, as you mentioned, and putting our public servants at risk, or whether it's holding MSD accountable for the consent decree that we have that already exists. That's, it's not working from the local and state and quite frankly, the federal perspective. It's important, yes, that we fund issues that need to be funded and addressed. It's also important that we hold these companies accountable so we as the taxpayers aren't continuing to carry the financial burden of their lies, of their mistakes, of their accidents. But I also say um, what's working is when legislators like me who are from urban areas and legislators like my colleague, State Representative Angie Hatton, who are from rural areas, come together to have each other's back. Because I've stood with her as she has spoken up about Martin County, Kentucky, needing clean bathing and drinking water and being one of the few urban legislators to stand with her. And she stood with me in that same call to similar call to action for the West End of Louisville, where I live in the Southwest End to say that we have to make sure no matter where we are in Kentucky, that we are standing together to make sure we take care of the people that we are elected to serve. Well, we sure appreciate your efforts because we know, you know, it's a tough environment and that there's a lot of entrenched interest in doing things the way that it's always been done. Mm-hmm. And so having you stand up with, you know, whoever, you know, you can find and making those alliances across the rural and urban divide. I come from rural Kentucky and okay. I really appreciate it. I, I started organizing in Louisville because of the the climate strike, but like I'm coming from Paris, Kentucky. All and right. we're having yes. exactly the same thing. They've tore up all our streets to put in gas lines. So Columbia Gas mm. is, is fixing the gas line, but they didn't do the metro sewer at the same time. And there are people like down my street who's, you know, like their sewer, it backs up. Like there's mm-hmm. problems with the sewer in that town. And yeah, the, the investment, instead of being also just like practical and trying to think about how to be the most efficient with our resources and saying, okay, we're going to tear up the thing. Let's do both at once. You find out that, yeah, they're just investing haphazardly and with petrochem first. Mm-hmm. But, that's um, right. That's right. And that's why we have to recognize that the way we win is when we see the intersectionality of our issues, whether it's a, a pipeline in an indigenous community or going through Bernheim Forest, or whether it's, you know, Paris, Kentucky, or uh, downtown Louisville, we have to recognize that our issues are intersectional. And when we band together, when we bring our collective power together, we have the strength to push back against any and everything that corrupt governments, corrupt businesses and organizations are trying to throw at us. Well, we really appreciate you being here with us. Ryan Van Velter just turned up too. So we've got a lot of media turning up and our other speakers turning up. All right. We're going to have a little in-person circle now. And I think we've also got somebody from Coming Clean coming to talk about the Louisville Charter. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much and and have a good day at work. All right. All right. Bye, y'all.
And that was Attica Scott, Kentucky House representative from the district from which we were reporting on the morning of September 7th when Extinction Rebellion Kentucky got a coalition of groups together for a We All Drink Downstream event in Greenwood, just south of Rubbertown on the west end of Louisville. And I'm going to turn it back over to uh, Alice Melendez from Extinction Rebellion Kentucky, who continued addressing the media. For investment in the Ohio River Valley to build another cancer alley, another major petrochemical development between Pittsburgh and Kentucky. So they've proposed ethane cracker plants. They're starting to build an ethane cracker plant outside of Pittsburgh. They've got another one which is financially on the rocks, but has a Korean investor and they had been trying to build it on the Ohio side of the river. And over and over again, the government says, like the Department of Energy does a massive study to say, invest in petrochemical industry. It's gonna be the, the renaissance of jobs for Appalachia. And so the, you know, the Trump administration published the De Department of Energy report, petrochemical renaissance. But what we see over and over again is that people get poisoned um, and that the job growth is not real. So it's all based on fracking in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. It's creating this massive amount of cheap natural gas and they're trying to turn it into plastic so that the kind of like wildcat natural gas producers don't go broke because their investors are fleeing and real people on fence line communities like in Rubbertown experience the vapors, experience the poison in the water. Real people in Russell find a warehouse full of paint thinner burning in their residential neighborhood and Louisville public firefighters have to put it out for the chemical company who decided to put it there. And so there's this national call for no new fossil fuel infrastructure to stop the build out of this petrochemical complex that there's enough already. You know, there's already dozen or more companies just right up river from us and it's enough. And we need to be moving away from that and instead concentrating on waters. And right here, you know, the Metro Sewer District wants ratepayers to pay for solving the sewer problem, whereas the government will put billions of dollars of subsidies into the fossil fuel industry. To give you some more background on this particular location and its real relationship to this long fight, Al Huang from Coming Clean is about to talk and just introduce you to the Louisville Charter for Safer Chemicals. Hello, I'm Al Huang. I'm with uh, Coming Clean, and I'm also a lawyer at the Natural Resources Defense Council. So I'm going to talk briefly about the Louisville Charter for Safer Chemicals. Today, you've heard about the issues going on in Louisville right now. You heard from Rubbertown as well. And I'm here a little bit to talk about what Coming Clean is doing with many of the organizations involved in this to kind of create a chemical policy future that, you know, instead of dealing with these issues kind of one at a time piecemeal, it's kind of a vision for how we see chemical policy that, you know, is inclusive, that respects racial justice and social justice as well. And so I'm going to walk through quickly what the Louisville Charter is, which recently there was an update. Um, for those who are unaware, Coming Clean is a collaborative of hundreds of individuals and organizations that are united for a desire to create a comprehensive reform of the chemical industry. So it's no longer a source of harm, 
But I think more importantly, I think this is what the charter talks about, and this is some of the issues that you've heard about today locally, is that you can't build a reform without kind of principles that are the foundation of the world that you're looking to create. So part of Coming Clean's principles in doing its work is to ensure that the work is done in a transparent way. It's collaborative. It's led by justice. It builds capacity of small grassroots frontline communities that are involved and on the front lines of the impacts. It believes in respect, inclusivity, openness, and accountability. And about the Louisville Charter, folks from Louisville, Kentucky, like Ebony Cochran, were involved in the creation of the Charter. So what is the Charter? Um, In May 2004 in Louisville, Kentucky, grassroots groups organized with other grassroots organizations and environmental justice leaders from across the country to create a common platform for systemic chemical industry transformation. And um, really what it is, it's a roadmap for change and it's become the gold standard for developing an equitable campaign around safer chemicals. So generally it has a large vision statement and it's followed by planks. What we call the planks are these main principles that underpin kind of what this, this chemical future looks like. And 2004, when it was first written, there were six planks. There are now, after an update, 10 planks. And each plank has a detailed background paper that explains what the principle is and then provides examples of different policies that could be implemented to achieve the goal. The original charter was endorsed by hundreds of organizations and individuals, and we're currently in the process of getting endorsements for the new updated one. So what is the charter? I'm going to kind of walk through the different planks that are in there. The first one, this is a new one, is to address the significant impacts of chemical production and use on climate change. I mean, quickly, many people aren't aware of like the contribution that the chemical industry makes on climate change. One, through just the consumption of fossil fuels for energy use to make chemicals. It's a very energy-intensive process, and fossil fuels are generally used as the source of energy. And in fact, within the chemical production sector and its contribution to climate change, it's the second largest industrial contributor to climate change. The second is that most chemicals use fossil fuels as feedstock, so as the building block to make the chemicals. So you have fossil fuels being used as the building block, and that's another huge contributor. If you look at the life cycle of chemicals and its climate impact, these impacts on its own are pretty significant. And then finally, many chemicals themselves that are generating produced are themselves greenhouse gases, like um, fluorinated carbons, right? Those kind of chemicals themselves, when they get released into the atmosphere, are major greenhouse gases. And so um, the first one now is to address these planks. So when you're talking about climate change, we should talk about the chemical industry. And when we talk about the chemical industry, we should talk about what are its impacts on climate change. The second large principle that was added is to prevent disproportionate exposures and hazards and reduce cumulative impacts on environmental justice communities. So generally, disproportionate exposures are a statistical fact that if you are a low-income community or a community of color, uh, more often than not, you will disproportionately be exposed to hazards related to chemicals, whether it's from the production, from the use to the disposal of these chemicals. They'll be on the front lines and disproportionately bear the burden of those exposures compared to other communities that are not low-income or communities of color. On the flip side, too, of course, these same communities, they have a lot of the bad stuff, 
they also have a fair share of the good stuff like open space, green spaces, access to healthy foods, access to safe water, for example, transit, for example. And the other side of this too is to reduce cumulative impacts on environmental justice communities. So I think the science has really informed us on this that these communities that are on the front lines of exposure and hazards and carrying those burdens don't only get exposed to one chemical, often more often than not, it's multiple chemicals through air, through water, through the food they eat. And these multiple levels of exposure really have a cumulative impact that makes these communities particularly vulnerable. So if you're going to be talking about a holistic chemical policy framework, you can't do that without talking about the disproportionality of the exposures and the cumulative impacts on environmental justice communities. Three is to require safer substitutes and solutions for non-toxic economy. So the idea here are really underpinned by green chemistry principles that, you know, if there's a safer substitute for a toxic chemical that's currently on the market, we should be using that instead of the more toxic one. And each of these have a background paper that explains in more detail what does that look like. But a primary huge piece of this is that we can't get to where we're trying to get to if we continue using chemicals that are known to be dangerous and there are known safer substitutes or solutions. Number four is the use of scientific data to support health protective policies and practices. Many of the chemicals that are currently out there in the market that are used every day don't have a lot of data on that support, whether they're safe for human health and the environment. And those amount of chemicals out there, there's so many of them too, that it's kind of unbelievable that we don't have data that supports that. I mean, although it might seem like it's really hard and challenging to go and get, collect all this data and how much data do you need to collect before you know a chemical safe? What we do know is that based on different classes of chemicals that are already out there and the science around them, like, for example, chemicals that are persistent in the environment or that bioaccumulate in marine life, that, for example, or other animals that are consumed, you know, we should be thinking about, like, if we don't have all the data, we shouldn't have to wait for all the data. Many of these chemicals and the classes of chemicals they're in, um, that's enough information to take action to prevent them from being used in the market and people in the environment from being exposed to them. Um, number five is take urgent action to stop production and, and to immediately recover chemicals that are unsafe and or accumulate in the environment of people. As we said earlier, there are many chemicals out there, perchlorates, um, TCE, lead, and, and, you know, that we know get into our PFAS, for example, too, that are, we know they're unsafe and we know that in some cases they're very hard to recover, but we should immediately stop using those chemicals if we know that there's information out there showing that it can pose a threat to the environment people. Number six is act with foresight to protect health and prevent pollution. And this kind of grows from what many of you may be familiar with, the kind of idea of the precautionary principle. But I mean, more importantly, it's very similar to the one above that if we have information showing that um, a chemical may be unsafe or may accumulate in the environment or people, we should be thinking ahead and acting proactively to protect that community and human health and to prevent the pollution from being out there in the first place. Number seven, this really goes to an environmental justice principle too, is that like, once we know that these chemicals are out there, we need to take immediate action to protect, restore, and strengthen communities that are on the front lines, especially those that are vulnerable. And we need to also kind of recognize that just stopping the current exposure doesn't go the full distance of actually addressing the legacy pollution that has been allowed to exist through years and years of regulatory issues not addressing those impacts. 
Number eight, we need to also ensure that the public and workers fully have the right to know, participate, and decide. So that goes to knowing what kind of chemicals are being exposed to at the workplace, at the fence line, when you're purchasing products for children, for the elderly, women's products, which make certain populations more vulnerable like women. And then these folks have the right to participate and decide. That's not just to be involved, but to meaningfully participate and have their input influence the outcome of the policy end. And then the last two, number nine and number 10, really go to, well, what does the world look like? How do we build a economy that actually promotes safer chemicals and responsible business? The first is to incentivize responsible businesses and safer chemicals, which also means the flip side of that coin is that we disincentivize many of the bad actors, like the many subsidies that the fossil fuel and chemical industry has that allows them to continue operating. I mean, those should not be our go-to kind of policy to really get to safer chemicals. We really need to incentivize and ensure that those that are doing the right thing, that are putting out chemicals out there that we said that are part of a non-toxic economy, those companies should be incentivized. And then finally, to build an equitable and health-based sustainable economy. What does that look like? That means that we're ensuring that at the local level, we're providing incentives and building locally-led, locally-based businesses, people of color-owned, um, LGBTQ-owned businesses as well, indigenous, tribal businesses, ensuring those are being fostered and also that the jobs that not just these businesses, but all, all these within the chemical sector provide are um, livable jobs that provide uh, livable wages too. And if you don't have all those pieces, we can't get to the place that we want to get to. So what are the next steps here? I mean, one is we're getting individual and organization endorsements from the Louisville Charter. And currently we have over 60 mainstream national as well as grassroots environmental justice groups who have endorsed it and we're seeking to grow that number. Um, the second one is to finalize the policy background papers for each one of those planks we mentioned earlier to really get to the nitty gritty of like, what would it take to implement these policies at the state, local, and federal level. And then we want to expand and flesh out how we work together to roll out and implement an organizing strategy around winning the goals of these planks. So we don't have other issues like you've heard today in Louisville, Kentucky. Those don't continue happening at a large scale. And then finally, we want to plan workshops with members on how to use and apply the Louisville Charter in their everyday work. And here's the link you can go to that um, explains more about what the charter is and as well as to endorse it. So I guess I'll stop there. And if there are questions, we'll, we'll take those now. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. They can find that at comingclean.org, looking up the Louisville Charter, endorse the charter. And so you guys are getting a little bit of a background on the vision that it's possible to get from here to somewhere better. So a lot of times I think that people, you know, on one side say, well, the environmental groups just say, stop, no, stop everything. And like, what do you mean no new petrochemical infrastructure? How could you even do that? Like the world is so dependent on petrochemical infrastructure. And part of the reason we hosted the meeting here and we have a little driving tour imagined coming out of here and going up to Bell's Lane and like really looking at the scale of this. And like, I lived in Houston for six years. I, I know what it looks like to live in a petrochemical complex. And I know how critical it is to our current world system and how much of a driver it is. But people like the folks from Coming Clean are imagining a world where we can get from here to there. We don't have to just keep doing the same thing that we're doing. And so on one hand, you know, the first step, and this is something that, that Extinction Rebellion talks about, 
and that especially as Extinction Rebellion Kentucky, we've always talked about the, the first thing that you've got to do is just put the brakes on. You can't, when you recognize the seriousness of the ecological crisis that we're in, you can't just keep doing the same thing and then expect to transition it and just, well, we'll just switch, you know, from gas to electric and it's going to be fine. Like, if you look at the scale of the investments that we got, you know better. And so we always talk about the four denials. The four denials first is the denial of the scope of the problem, how big the problem is. Two, the denial of the carrying capacity of the earth and imagining that the earth can just keep on going just down the track that we're going forever and that there, there will never be a stop point. And even if people speak to that, they don't always really realize it and live it. And that's part of the reason we always mess with Justin when we do our radio because He's like biking everywhere and harvesting service berries off of UofL because he's like really trying to figure out how do we live smaller. Next is denial of, of violence that the comforts that we have here are always related to violence somewhere else. And that's another thing that Rubbertown knows better than anybody. Well, maybe not better than, you know, a mining, a lithium mine in Chile, but it's the same deal being a frontline community. And last, what we call entanglement. People deny that we're connected to everything else that's alive on this earth, and people feel like what happens over there is not going to affect me, but we know that it will. And so we're trying to face these four denials, but also realize that there are actionable steps to like get from here to there. And so one of them is to take government money, take it out of petrochem, and put it into water. Water and sewer, <laughs> because we all need water and sewer. We don't want cholera epidemics, and we don't want cancer. Right? We can all agree that. And so that's part of why we've invited Dennis Dolan coming and speaking on behalf also of Bud Hickson, who is making a statement related to Metro Sewer District and their latest move around the consent decree. I've been invited as an individual today, and I'm honored to, to be here representing uh, the general community. I have been personally affected by the adverse effects of sewage and drainage and other problems, and I want to address those to you right now. As has been said, my name is Dennis Dolan. For over 40 years, I've been a Louisville resident, a property owner, taxpayer, and a law-abiding citizen most of the time. I'm here today to share my personal concerns about the current federal consent decree actions, which are covered under Western District of Kentucky, Louisville Division Case Number 3, 05-CB-00236-CRS involving the city, the Metro Council, the Metropolitan Sewer District, state agencies, and continuing failures with the Clean Water Act enforcement. I want to emphasize this morning the pro-development bias in planning and design and Louisville Forward, where developer approvals are favored even when approvals cause egregious sewer overflows and downstream flooding. The pro-development bias in the referenced Second Amendment consent decree approach is warping rational planning and the ultimate success of removing pollution from our waterways in favor of granting unwise sewer system expansion. We have asked Metro Council for a Truth in Development Act to be added to the Metro Louisville Land Development Code to require full disclosure of downstream and downpipe sewer overflows and flooding, and that the full disclosure be required of MSD and developer applicants prior to public hearing, so that the public knows where, when, and what will be impacted. The new VA hospital in the East End Providence Point 520 apartment complex 
are fourteen miles from the west end, by sewer pipe, where the crumbling Morris Forman Wastewater Treatment Plant is located. MSD prefers the term Water Quality Treatment Center, but Morris Forman is on the way to bypassing four billion, that's with a B, gallons of untreated sewage this year, including untreated industrial and hospital waste streams. Our main treatment plant is not a water quality center, but a national embarrassment. Well, just how many millions of gallons will be bypassed or overflow and be discharged untreated between the developments on the East End and the West End treatment plant? Well, the Providence Point apartment complex, by developers' own estimates, will newly discharge 99,800 gallons per day of raw sewage into a 60-year-old sewer pipe which runs through the community of Thornhill, where my home is located, immediately downstream from Providence Point and within six feet of the side of my home. This excessive volume of newly discharged raw sewage from the approved Providence Point complex poses immediate serious health and safety threat to Thornhill residents. Failure of the existing aged sewer pipes will result in inundation of my home and other neighbor properties with raw sewage which will then contaminate the closely adjacent Thornhill Creek, another direct violation of the ongoing federal consent decree. What's more, concentrated industrial waste batches are repeated impacts to the treatment system, but MSDs and this city's policies of coddling big bourbon and big rubber has cost the sewage system millions and has prompted MSD to plead for a 10-year extension of the consent decree and to file suit against the Metro Council to allow MSD to raise the ratepayer rates to cover its cost of compliance. We have asked and hope you will join in asking the federal court to order an independent review of MSD's policies and pollution and a moratorium on further development until the problems are resolved legally, publicly, transparently, and with full accountability. Thank you. And you're listening to full coverage of the September 7th morning press conference and community event that took place down at Riverview Park in Greenwood, just south of Rubbertown on the west side of Louisville. Forward Radio was there covering this community grassroots action to raise awareness about the need for protecting our water quality both locally here in Louisville in terms of uh, Metropolitan Sewer District's uh, desire to raise rates and extend the EPA consent decree, but also nationally as part of the national movement to resist the expansion of the petrochemical build-out in our nation and here in the Ohio River Valley. The next speaker up was Tina Halbig from Floyd's Fork Environmental Association here on Forward Radio's Access Hour. Hi, I'm Tina Halbig, longtime clean water advocate. I've been with Floyd's Fork Environmental Association and co-founder of that since 1991. And we're very concerned over the uh, second amended consent decree that MSD is asking for. We also believe that the excesses in overflow are outrageous as well as me getting a call yesterday of someone wanting to put a kayak that they found out that 17 million gallons in excess had been discharged from the Floyd's Fork wastewater treatment plant. There are so many people out now because the weather is nice 
that want to go in the stream. There are many pollutants in the stream because the wastewater treatments are discharging into there, whether it's Floyd's Fork Wastewater Treatment Plant, Cedar Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant, Hyde Creek, whatever it is. There are also pump stations that will continue to be put in Jefferson County that would be a cost borne by ratepayers for the electricity, for the cleanup, monitoring, uh, taking care of these various facilities. I've toured the Boris Foreman Wastewater Treatment Plant two or three times over the years. It's really unbelievable the state that it's in and what they are asking, the financial costs that are being asked. There is something like 170 million, 190 million, 50 million. I mean, we're talking about almost a half a billion dollars. Now, where is MSD going to get that money? Well, they're bypassing Metro Council. They want to go to a court. They want to have a court order that they would no longer have to obey the cap. Anytime they want to go over 6%, they have to go to Metro Council. The public has to know about it. The public has to get a chance to comment. Okay, let's just cut everybody out. It's simpler for them to just bypass any of the public involvement and charge whatever fees they want to charge. We would like some transparency with what they are asking for. You know, I mean, give us the information. But it's outrageous. They did have a lightning strike and, and some of their equipment went down. The thing has been flooded. Apparently they didn't even have a backup generator. And anyway, in looking at the wastewater treatment plants and getting rid of several package plants over the years, Floyd's Fork Environmental Association and the United Nations Association of Kentucky are very concerned about PFAS. That's per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. These substances are linked to serious health issues. I encourage everyone to watch the movie Dark Waters with an S with Mark Ruffalo, and also encourage you to watch The Devil We Know, which is also a documentary about PFAS and PFOA. They know the health effects. In North Carolina, DuPont is paying to take care of those individuals that have the health issues. Not only will they take care of that, but they're going to have continuing medical care. And just think of all the health issues that we have here in Jefferson County. When we look at the West End, people there, it's been reported, are not living as long as the people in the East End. 10 to 12 years of life lost. The same is true of the PFAS chemicals. They're now found in 99.7% of all Americans. When a newborn baby is born, they have the chemicals in their blood. When a mother nurses her baby, it's in her breast milk. We are having all kinds of cancers, prostate, testicular, kidney, liver damage, you know, it just goes on and on. They're finding now more female firefighters with breast cancer. In fact, these chemicals were created in the beginning. It started with 3M. They were approached by the Navy to ask them to help because a Navy aircraft carrier had a fire that killed about 139 sailors who were in the bottom and about the same number were injured. So they wanted to be able to put out fires quicker. But what's happened is we know that the PFOA and the PFOS that are in the firefighting home, it has wreaked havoc with the firefighters. And what they are finding 
the general president of the International Firefighters Association for 325,000 firefighters who are in the United States and Canada is that occupational cancer is the number one killer of firefighters. Not only the foam, but the turnout gear that they wear has Teflon sandwiched inside. Recently, I spoke with some state representatives and a legislative person for the Kentucky firefighters. And at the end of my presentation, the firefighter put his hands like this and he said, you know, we were very narrowly focused. We were just looking at the foam and just looking at the gear we were wearing. But I made it clear to him that it is a much broader issue and that when he goes home, he and his family are drinking the water, the Louisville Water Company water with PFAS in it. Now Louisville Water Company will tell you that they have the best water, they have the best tasting water. They're detecting PFAS, but they don't have to report it. We've asked them to send it out with the bill, let people know what they're detecting in the water. But we will continue to ask that the Louisville Water Company remove the PFAS chemicals we will continue to ask that the PFAS chemicals be removed from wastewater. If you can imagine how much more storming is dumping into the Ohio River and how many people downstream, whether it is their cattle or their horses that are drinking the water, whether it is the crops that they are irrigating. You know, we're all in this together and it's gonna take everyone. It's gonna take people calling Congress, call the White House operator at 202-225-3121 and ask that H.R. 2467, the bill in Congress, H.R. 2467, PFAS Protect Act, you ask your senators, it's already passed Congress in the House, ask your senators to sponsor and pass this bill. This will force the EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, to address these chemicals and label them as hazardous. When they're labeled as hazardous, there will be lots of cleanup everywhere. We already have the National Defense Authorization Act that has passed that is going to help clean up 600 military sites. We have military sites here in Kentucky as well. Not only will they clean it up, they're going to test the service women and men there and they will follow them for three years afterwards. Generally what they find is the level goes down. But there is correlating information from Dr. Philippe Grandjean that correlates COVID-19 with one particular PFAS chemical that he studied, PFBA. And the chart shows those with less amounts of the chemicals that they were asymptomatic or had very few symptoms. And those that had large amounts were on ventilators are dying. So it's everybody's health. We all have to drink water. We need to drink water. Just think how much more PFOA, PFOS, all of these different chemicals that you're surrounded with every day, whether it's on your carpet, on your poster furniture, the food you eat, you know, in, in the air you breathe, it's on dust particles. So we hope that people will pay attention and understand how important it is, how important. These chemicals are in our bodies. They can stay in our bodies for two to nine years. Some of the chemicals that were made in the beginning can remain in the environment for thousands of years. 
you know, people need to wake up. This is a health crisis. You know, you start out as a baby, you go through school, you go through high school, you go through college, you get out there, you're making your mark on the world, you're doing your thing, all of a sudden, wham, you are sick. What happens to your financial status? You know, what happens to who's going to take care of the kids? I mean, it is real life. This is happening here, and we can make a difference. Thank you. And something that really strikes me about what Tina's saying, you know, we've all gotten kind of used to the idea that our bodies are full of chemicals because there are chemicals around us all the time. And if you kind of address like sort of normal folks and they're like, well, yeah, like that's just part of life. And it, it really jives with what happens inside industrial plants too. I'm going to read a little piece of the Chemical Safety Board report about the big explosion at Carbide Industries in 2011. Not because it's current news, but because it's still going on all the time. And it's what they call the normalization of deviance. And I want us all to just think for a minute about the normalization of deviance, which abnormal events become acceptable in everyday operations. And we can all see that in our lives. It's cheaper than upgrading the plant and doesn't slow down production and process and profit. You know, human lives, especially poor people's lives, are just not that expensive in dollar terms. And that's what's driving our decision making. So the Chemical Safety Board did their report in 2011. Company ignored years of smaller, similar incidents in an electric arc furnace. So what's the story? For years and years, they had a dozen little explosions in an electric arc furnace that has, you know, furnace contents heated to 3,800 degrees Fahrenheit. They blew the windows out of the observation room and they replaced the windows instead of moving the room and trying to figure out why it was blowing up. And they just kept going and they kept going until a failure uh, deferring crucial maintenance of the large electric furnace that blew up, resulting in two deaths and other injuries ejecting furnace contents heated to 3800 degrees Fahrenheit along with molten calcium carbide, powdered debris and hot gases, workers dying from burns within 24 hours and if they hadn't been dead you know they would have wished they were and this had happened a dozen times before but as CSB chairperson Rafael Morarazzo said, this accident is literally a case study into the tragic predictable consequences of running equipment to failure even when repeated safety incidents over many years warn of impending failure. When control room windows blew out during previous furnace incidents, the company merely reinforced them rather than taking the safe course and moving the control room farther from the furnace and investigating why the overpressure events were happening. And and that's at Carbide, which is it's inheriting the legacy. It's the vampire new life to fool the mortals around it and separate itself from the Bhopal disaster, which was the same thing in a place with you know millions of people living around their factory they had a normalized deviance a catastrophic incident killed 16,000 and maimed or chronically poisoned 40,000 people the Indian government tries to press homicide charges against the CEO and the US government protects him protects him from extradition because corporate leaders do not face accountability for killing people period because deviance has to be normalized in order to keep the system that we live in going. And so, you know, Warren Anderson CEO dies in Florida, comfortable in 2014, 
and the people of Bhopal never get addressed. Their site is still not cleaned up. You know, Dow buys DuPont, spins off Camores, and tries and cuts responsibility, and now nobody is responsible. And the chemical companies are continually playing this shell game to not be responsible for poisoning everybody, but it's being taken as, as a normal part of life now, so we're all, we've all been like suckered into it, basically. And we're all playing right along with them. And so part of our message here is that we should have clean water, we should have working sewer. If what we're doing doesn't work, we should just stop and put a halt, put a moratorium on development, put a moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure until the powers that be can prove what we call the safety principle. They can prove that what they're doing does work instead of failing and failing and failing and saying that they haven't proved that it doesn't work because we're watching it not work. Like we have health statistics, we have health anecdotes and realities that we all know that's showing that it doesn't work. And meanwhile, you know, disasters only become more frequent, especially if they're weather related. So, you know, you've got a lightning strike at the paint thinner warehouse, you've got a lightning strike at Morris Foreman, you've got floods in all these rivers. You know, I was in Houston coming up on Harvey. They completely underestimated, even in Houston, in a place that's prepared for hurricanes, they underestimated and got around hundreds of chemical leaks. And the same thing just happened with Ida. So everybody is breathing all this toxic vapors and toxic waters because there's no pressure to not. And that's why, you know, we're part of this national push to stop building new fossil fuel infrastructure and invest in water. So Sharon, I'm the other co-founder of Floyd Spark Environmental Association. This is one of the largest creeks in the state of Kentucky. It goes, flows through five counties and it's responsible for the drainage of 33% of Jefferson County. Thank goodness for this, or we would have massive flooding in a lot more than what we do without this valuable creek. But when we canoed this creek in 1991, which our organization is 30 years old now, we found everything unbelievable in the creek, including drums of chemicals, okay? And I could not believe with how beautiful the creek is when you get in and canoe the greenery, the fossils, all of the mussels, that this creek would have gas tanks from semis, water heaters, unbelievable mattresses, appliances. So I sent out about 50 letters telling everybody from the governor on down, anybody in the blue pages. And what we found out is that the A District Commissioner said, what will you want to do about it? And I said, what can we do? We're just citizens. How can we get this big stuff out? And he said, we'll pay for the canoes if you all will get volunteers. And this is, it sounds simple, and this worked out fantastic for 28 years prior to COVID. With COVID, we've had to put a halt on all of the cleanups, but we've taken out like over 200 tons of things from now instead of the big items we have a lot of plastics and the plastics are very very bad because the microplastics are in the food we eat the salt we eat the beer you drink everything has microplastics which is very very damaging to our system and plastics of course are made from chemicals and I have been in the healthcare industry for 60 years and 10 months now, and I have seen lots and lots of cancer from the diagnostic end. 
but the chemicals and the chemical pollution adds to all of this. And one thing that we would like for you all to do, and that is every chance you get, call and ask for the Global Water Company. We've already asked this, but there's no action. We've asked this the Metro Council, no action. We would like for them to set up the granulated activated carbon, GAC, and reverse osmosis, RO, filters that can reduce the PFAS substances and an ion exchange treatment. This can help all of us if you already have cancer and you're going through treatment, hopefully having clean water to drink and to bathe in, and also the veterinarians that are involved with our group notice a high incidence of the animals involved with the bacteria as well as chemicals. We don't have like direct papers to prove that each chemical or each animal, but we know that there is a definite increase. And movies like Dark Water, there's books, there's a lot of resources. If we had a list, the SDS system can show what damages and mutations can happen. Just like this virus that we are all exposed to now, the COVID, but we need to get rid of the chemical pollution too. And we need more help with that. Thank you all. Thank you all for being here. And yes, yes. you have a question? Yeah, do you know why there's not a push um, to teach and respect for the environment and the school system and why it's not part of the academic process? You would think that they did that to teach people and children. And I'm 46. I remember back in the day, the Do Not Litter campaign and give a who don't pollute. And that kind of stuck with me for whatever reason. Why we don't see more of that nowadays? Because you would think if you taught that and people grew up with that, they might not throw the can out the car or start from the cup out the window. Well, and I've been blown away. My kids are 12 and 10. And so I've got kids in school right now. And they're showing them, they're talking about uh, pros and cons of fracking with my son's class. And they're using a TV bit from 10 years ago. And sure. the data's all wrong. Sure. Because they want to show, and, and I know the Kentucky Coal Association invested in making curricula. So that was my kind of Yeah, point. the petrochemical the companies pushing are to buying. Teach that. Right. And so they're using 10-year-old data yeah. to say that, like, we're really not sure about the health impacts of fracking when, like, now they've got, like, huge spikes in Ewing sarcoma sure. in weird rural places where nothing else is going on but except for frack waste. And they're not showing that yeah. current news. They're showing a 10-year-old bit from CBS yeah. about how maybe it's bringing jobs. And you can look at the um, Orby, the Ohio River Valley Institute. And they did a piece about the job benefits of fracking and how much it's like actually helped anybody in those regions that are experiencing this chemical. And it was billed as like, it's gonna be a great job creator. And that's what they're showing my kids. Sure. And the actual reality sure. is unemployment is dropping because everybody's leaving the county. Sure. <laughs> they're all moving yeah. out. And like, that's not how you want to drop your unemployment. We see you, GOP. We see you. We see you. We see you. We see you, GOP. We see you.
And that is how the conversation wrapped up at the uh, September 7th morning press conference and we all drink downstream community event down at Riverview Park just south of Rubbertown on the west side of Louisville with Extinction Rebellion organizing this fantastic Louisville contribution to the National Week of Action against the petrochemical build out and government support and investment. We should put a moratorium on more petrochemical development in the Ohio River and nationwide. That was the message of citizens, and it's the message we put a megaphone to here on the Access Hour on Forward Radio with me, Justin Moggs. It's been so great bringing you this special community event, and you can learn more and get involved at xrebelky.wordpress.com slash blog. There's a great story about the day's events, and you can get involved on Facebook at xrebelky. But I'm going to leave you with a little bit more of the Mighty Shades of Ebony and Lionheart with their original piece prepared for this great day here on 4 Radio. Help our community, still at a minimum. We gotta fight back. Let's fight for our end. I'm out of the veil, so no more for it. Tell us to sit and we have to obey. Treat us like dogs, turn us to slaves. Tell us we're different, but we'll make the same. I'm hating the system. It needs to change. I say that a lot, but my option the same. Don't get me started. This hurt in my burden. Speaking of hurting, I feel like a burden. Keep on pressing, now I'm going insane. Going insane, I'm going insane. But I'm black, so it's not the same. George J. Stinney, I'm saying his name. He killed two people, got both his brain. White man named Robert did the same. Peacefully, they took him away. See what I mean? A people die, but he breathes in a cell, some are safe. And equality is played like a game. My head on the wall, trouble like fame. Family crying, Daryl in pain. You're hearing the shackles, they keep us in chains. Keep trying to play, my life like a game. You play like a stupid, you don't want to change. This is not a black issue, it's hood to the holler. Poverty, black lung, miners getting slaughtered for going on strike when the pay wasn't proper. No inheritance for the coal miner's daughter. Trailer parks and projects in many ways the same. It's not a black and white thing, it's a money game. Misinformation leads to more pain. We see you, Joe P. Time to make a change. We see you. We see you. We see you, GOP. We see you. We see you. We see you. We see you, GOP. We see you.